0: Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. So I'm glad that you are with me today. Today we're going to look a bit at what it was like to be a Christian in the early church, what early Christian worship looked like, and maybe move into a little bit of the, the beliefs of early Christians. So thanks for being here. As we've talked about in previous episodes, the earliest Christians were all Jewish. There was not a separate Christian religion which just sort of fell out of the sky. Christianity was just one of the sects of Judaism. And they were Jewish people who believed that the long-awaited Messiah had come. Now, this is a matter of some scholarly debate, but the vast majority of scholars would say that for first-century Judaism, the Messiah was not a great cosmic figure who had divine power. Instead, he would be a regular human being who would be this great leader of the Jewish people, perhaps a king that would reign for all time, but certainly not himself, God. For the early Christians, however, the Messiah looked very different. So for the early Christians, their messianic expectation was not based purely on a kind of first century rabbinical interpretation, but instead on who Jesus said that he was. And the vast majority of the time that Jesus is talking about himself and referring to himself in the third person in the gospels, he uses this term, the son of man. And this is a term which has a lot of resonance with the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, the son of man is this cosmic figure to whom all glory and authority and power are are handed by God. So the Son of Man comes before the throne of God, and God hands over to him all his authority. So the Son of Man is not merely a political leader. The Son of Man is um, one who shares in all that God is and all that God has. There are other moments in the New Testament in which people have specific insight into who Jesus is. This is usually either someone who's really full of inspiration, someone like St. Peter or or, um, St. Thomas, or it is the demons who can see him for who he is. And they refer to him as son of God. So as we talked about before, if you were a um, son of a Roman god, you'd be like a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, a little bit human, a little bit divine, look like a regular human. You can tear a lion apart with your hands. Uh, But in Jewish religion, to be the son of... God, creator of heaven and earth, that would be insane. That doesn't make any sense. How can you share the nature of the almighty creator unless you yourself are, in a sense, the almighty creator? A lot of modern scholars of Judaism would nuance this somewhat and say that a belief in um, the word of God, who was a figure... Who either was God or was very close to God or uh, bore some very intimate relationship with God was actually a, a big part of, of uh, Jewish belief in the first century. This is the thesis of someone like Daniel Boyeran who teaches at UC Berkeley. And if this is in fact true, then there is actually much more continuity between Christian and first-century Jewish belief in who Jesus was than had previously been assumed. Regardless. The apostles were preaching this message of a Messiah who had come, who was not just a great king, not just a great general, but was himself God incarnate. And so people were either really compelled and attracted to this message, or they were horrified by it. And they thought this was just insane blasphemy and just crazy talk. So as the disciples, as the apostles went out all over the Roman Empire from Spain and the Italian peninsula, through Greece and Turkey, through um, Syria and Palestine, all the way to modern India, they were spreading this message that the Messiah had come. He was not just a great king or a great ruler, but was himself God incarnate. And being themselves Jewish, they did this primarily within Jewish communities. But then the message would spread from these Jewish communities two greater populations. And we get a firsthand account of what this looked like in the book of Acts. So this is a little section from chapter 13 of Acts. So Paul and his companions have come to a city in modern-day Turkey. And the text says, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and of the prophets, the officials of the synagogue sent them a message saying, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, give it. So Paul stood up and with a gesture began to speak. And here we have a record of an early Christian sermon. It's not an emotional peal. It's not a harangue. Instead, it's a recapitulation of all of Jewish history, culminating in the person of Jesus. Paul says, You Israelites and others who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our ancestors and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. For about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. After he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. For about four hundred and fifty years. After that he gave them judges until the time of the prophet Samuel. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for forty years. When he had removed him, he made David their king. In his testimony about him, he said, I have found David, son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart, who will carry out all my wishes. Of this man's posterity, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. He starts with the selection of Israel to be God's people, and recaps all of the major events between then and now, saying that all of this has been leading up to this one person. All of this culminates in this one person of Jesus. He then sums up the death and resurrection of Jesus, saying, But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God has promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. And if you were to ask what is the upshot of all this, Paul proclaims, Let it be known to you, therefore, my brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is promised to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So why should we get into this? There's the sense that there is an enslavement to sin, to evil, to death, to sickness, to ignorance, corruption, that all humanity shares, and that Christ, for the early church, is the freedom from those things. So then Paul sits back down, sermon over, did it go okay? Who knows? They go out to brunch, and then they come back the next Sunday. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and blaspheming. They contradicted what was spoken by Paul. Then both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, since you reject it and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. We are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and praised the word of the Lord. And as many as had been destined for eternal life became believers. Thus the word of the Lord spread throughout the region. Again, it's important to remember that this is a Jewish group vying for prominence within a plurality of Jewish sects. So some people have misread this as being this brand new religion, falls down out of the sky, And its first act is to condemn bad Judaism, but that's literally the opposite of what's happening here. Instead, Paul is making this case that Christianity is the true Judaism. Obviously, this is deeply offensive to people who are from other parts of Judaism, but it's very different from a group of, um, you know, totally non-Jewish Odin worshipers or whatever coming in and saying... Judaism is bad. Instead they're they're not saying Judaism is bad. They're saying our brand of Judaism is the right brand of Judaism. Be that as it may, it infuriated all the people in the other brand of Judaism, in Pharisaic Judaism, in the Judaism of the synagogue, and fairly soon Christians become unwelcome there. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their region. So they shook the dust off their feet in protest against them, and went on to Enconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So this is a specific incident where Paul is preaching in a synagogue. People in the synagogue say, this is crazy talk. Get out of here. We don't want to listen to this garbage anymore. And so he is ejected from the synagogue, But this is also representative of a pattern that happens. In synagogue after synagogue, Christianity is proclaimed, and the majority of people say, listen, what you're doing, this is not the real Judaism. We are are the real Judaism here. You guys are this weird, off-brand new sect, and we don't want anything to do with you. And so if the synagogues really become the province of Pharisaic Judaism, the, the kind of ancestor to modern Judaism, And then if the temple is very much the place of the Sadducees, as you might remember from our our first episode, so the Sadducees are very much in control of temple worship, the Pharisees by the beginning of the second century are very solidly in control of synagogue worship without a lot of Christian influence, then what's left for the Christians? They don't have the synagogues, they don't have the temples. What's left is really, in a sense, the primary locus of Jewish religion, which is the home. So in a Jewish home today even, in an Orthodox Jewish home especially, there are lots and lots of blessings that happen throughout the day. There are lots and lots of mini-services that happen throughout the day, before the evening meal. There are all sorts of prayers that are said in the home. And this is not just sort of like a half-hearted, like, oh, thanks God, you know, let's, let's get on with the important stuff. That God is really brought into the home in this very significant, very serious way. And as we saw in this reading from Acts, it's not only Jewish people to whom people like Paul are preaching, but there are also all these Gentiles who get really interested. And for the Gentiles, for these Roman pagans, the home is also the primary center of worship. So in Greek religion, you think of these like grand temples as being kind of like the place where worship happens. And Romans had big temples too. They would have lots of altars and in the forum and in up on significant places and holy sites, there would be sacred groves and temples and all that sort of thing. But the majority of Roman religious practice actually, like Judaism, took place within the home. Every Roman home would have its own altar and there would actually be worship at that altar. There would be offerings at that altar every single day. So today we think of all these different places in the world as having such radically different cultures. If you are a an Ecuadorian farmer versus a Tokyo business person versus a homeless person on the streets of New York. I mean, your life is just radically different from the Middle East to parts of Africa to parts of Asia to uh, Inuit people. I mean, it's just like we have this incredible plurality of cultures. However, if you're going to visit those Inuit people, or if you're going to visit someone in Dubai, or if you're going to visit someone in New York, or if you're visiting someone in Lagos, you're going to fly into an airport that pretty much looks like every other airport. You're going to very easily be able to navigate where the gates are, where the ticket counters are, where the baggage claim is, because airports are just kind of airports all over the world. And the differences are smaller than the commonalities. To an even greater extent, the same was true for Roman cities. So Romans, no matter where they went, would either establish new cities or demolish old cities and rebuild them as these Roman cities, and they all looked like Roman cities. So they would have the same kinds of streets, often with the same names. They would have the same layout of um, kind of public gathering spaces, and they would have these houses that were just like Roman houses everywhere. And while not everybody lived in one of these houses, they were just what you thought of when you thought of the Roman house. So if you ask someone in 1950s America, what's like the American house? They might picture a white picket fence and a green lawn, a little kind of three-bedroom house or, or whatever in the burbs. Even though you might be asking this of someone who lives in Brooklyn in a tenement, or you might be asking this of someone who lives in California in a bungalow, there's still this sort of archetypal American house of the 1950s. And so for an ancient Roman, they might live in an apartment building called an insula. They might live in a villa out in the countryside. But the archetypal house, that just kind of platonic form of a Roman house, was this domus. And the domus had some um, very characteristic spaces. And the domus' basic layout looks the same from a ruin uh, outside of London to a ruin in Italy, like somewhere like Pompeii or Herculaneum to a ruin in Syria. Like, it's just the same house over and over and over again, like an airport. And so the domus would have bedrooms, the domus would always have a dining room, the domus would have a, a garden. But they had these two really special, interesting rooms. One was the atrium. And the atrium would have typically two very specific features. There was this big pool of water, this kind of ornamental pool that you could also use for drinking or washing your clothes or whatever. A big pool of water called the impluvium. And they would also frequently have an altar, an altar to the household gods, to the family gods, to the specific gods which lived in that house, watched over that house, protected that house, and there would be daily worship there. The Domus also had something called a tablinum. And the tablinum was a room that we really don't have an equivalent to for the most part. The closest point of comparison for me would be this room in my grandmother's house in Lubbock, Texas. So my grandmother had a dining room and a kitchen and a living room and bedrooms and bathrooms and so forth. But then at the front of the house, there was this one really weird room and it had this, um, beautiful white couch that looked like it had never been sat on. And there may have been some pieces of plastic covering some areas of the couch. I don't remember exactly. It had this, um, white carpet that was like whiter than snow. And you just knew as a grandchild, if you dared to ever walk on that with muddy feet, your life was just over. It's not that she would be like mean or spiteful or beat you. It would just be like you would just dissolve out of a sense of self-loathing and horror for having just destroyed this beautiful carpet. And there was this this polished, incredibly polished, shiny, mirror-like wooden table. It had this cut glass crystal bowl of mints on it. And this was just grueling temptation to any child. You know, you knew you couldn't go into the special room, but there was a giant, beautiful bowl of candy right in the middle of this table. It was awful. Just a a terrible, terrible room. And I think that it was almost never used. I don't know who sat in this parlor. Maybe if, you know, one day LBJ had come and just knocked on the door and said like, oh, Mary, I just came by for a cup of coffee. She would have served him coffee in this ornamental parlor. But it was really just this sort of almost ceremonial room that was kept as a world unto itself. And this is kind of what the tablinum was like. So the tablinum, it was not a bedroom. It was not a dining room. Some people call it the office, but it's also not that It is almost this kind of ceremonial room where Romanitas the kind of like the the, the essence of Romanness is on display so you might have the desk death, death masks of your ancestors you might have busts of famous ancestors there might be a big chair and a big table and this is the room into which um, you would come if you were entering into a negotiation with the Potterfamilias with the head of the household. So let's say the Potterfamilias owned ships and you want to do some shipping, then you would come in, you would be sitting in the big papa chair, you would stand in front of the desk and you would say, so I'm trying to load these, you know, 200 kilos of grain onto your boat, how much are you going to charge me for that? You'd haggle back and forth over the desk, you'd make a deal. It was also the room that was used for the family assembly. And Family assembly doesn't sound very significant, doesn't sound very special, but in the Roman world, it was actually a big deal. So at the family assembly, the paterfamilias would sit in this chair behind the desk, behind this table, and you would have, um, on one side, you would have his eldest son, on the other side of his chair, his second eldest son, on the other side, third, fourth, fifth, like all the kids kind of gathered around the chair. And then in the first row, you might have his younger brother who is the kind of second eldest in the family and next to him the uh, second brother after him and the third brother and then behind them you might have rows of cousins and behind them younger cousins all the way back to kids and all the way back to slaves and then on the other side of the room you have his wife standing in the first most important place and then after that maybe the eldest aunt and then after that some more aunts and then girl cousins and kids and then girl slaves And the kind of family business was done in this very ritualized, very ceremonial way. When I heard the term house church for the first time, I thought about people like playing acoustic guitar and sitting on ratty couches and drinking cups of coffee and like reading from their zippered up Bibles. I don't know. That's just kind of what occurred to me. But the Christian house church, the early church's house church has literally nothing to do with that. So if you had access to a domus, because uh, in your early Christian community, there were some wealthy Gentiles willing to kind of give the church space to meet, would you meet in the kitchen? Would you meet in one of the bedrooms? Would you meet in the dining room? Or would you meet in these two perfectly made ceremonial rooms that already exist within within the house? I'll give you a hint. It's the latter. So the early church would meet in the tablinum, and then also utilize the atrium. and the early church, worship may have looked very much like a Roman assembly. But instead of the paterfamilias sitting in a chair behind the, the table, you would have a very different figure. So the paterfamilias, the owner of this domus, would step aside, be like, my house is your, your house, take over. And the head of the Christian church, the head of the Christian assembly, would assume that chair. Initially, in most places, this was one of the disciples or one of the apostles. So one of the 12 apostles who were with Christ all the time, one of the 70 disciples who were sent out by Christ, and they would be the official teacher, the official celebrant of the services of the church, and they would assume that place in the chair. When one of the apostles would leave a community, then after teaching for several years, they would take a member of that community aside Lay hands upon him, and he would sit in the place of the apostle, and he would be known as the bishop of that community, the overseer of that community. So this became the bishop's chair. And that table behind which they sat, this became the altar. And then those rows of men on one side would be the male members of the congregation. Those rows of women on the other side would be the female members of the congregation. And by 160, we have this wonderful description of what an early Christian liturgy looked like. And what the author describes looks a lot like one of these Roman family gatherings. Except that it's not the paterfamilias, it's the bishop in the chair. Around him are not gathered his sons, but the presbyters, the elders, the priests of the church, and also the deacons of the church. And then in those men's and women's rows, there's this huge difference. There's no order of importance. So there's no most important Christian. It's not the owner of the house that gets kind of prime place at the uh, front right-hand corner of the men's row or the madam of the house who gets prime place in the front left-hand corner of the women's row. Instead, it's just everybody together. The slaves are not at the back. The children are not at the back. It is just everyone together in the church because in the church, from the very outset, There are no divisions of hierarchy. Rich people are not better than poor people. Slaves are not less important than free people. Everybody is one in Christ. And it's this level of radical equality that is shocking and kind of horrific to the highly class stratified Roman society. Justin Martyr, the guy writing this text, says this is so true that if a poor person comes in late and they're, they're dashing into the service and they get there and they're so embarrassed, they're dressed in rags, there's no place for them to even stand because it's so packed. The Bishop should give up his chair to that poor person because all are one in Christ. There is no hierarchy. And so in this service, in this liturgy, there are no acoustic guitars. There are no couches. Everybody's standing except the Bishop and What they do really has two parts. Part one, the beginning part of the service, is often called the liturgy of the word. And this looks a lot like what would have been done in the synagogue. Because at this point, the synagogue liturgy and the Christian liturgy are kind of evolving together. And they're, in a sense, kind of like bouncing off each other a little bit and forming a very similar type of worship. So if you went into a first century synagogue on the Sabbath... You might begin with some prayers, and then you would have some readings from the Old Testament. You would have a sermon discussing those readings. You would have some more prayers. If you went to a Christian house church in the first or second centuries, you would have some prayers, some readings from the Old Testament. And then, on top of that, you might have a selection from one of the Gospels, or maybe two of the Gospels. You might have a selection from a letter of someone like Paul or James, or maybe you're reading from Acts. And then you would have a sermon, and then you would have some more prayers. But at this point, the service wouldn't be over. Instead, a deacon would stand up and say, okay, everybody, if you're not yet baptized, hit the road. Because the second part of the service was just for the baptized. And this was not like a secret thing that only the baptized could see, It was the action of the gathered community. The action of the baptized was the second service. So we sometimes have this misunderstanding that the liturgy is this kind of like magic show that the priest does before the people. But that was not the early church understanding. Instead, the priest or the bishop, the the celebrant of this service, was focusing the prayers of the gathered community. And it was the gathered community through whose prayers god the holy spirit was acting to do something incredible so all of the unbaptized would leave and they might go sit in the atrium they might just head home they might go out to denny's for a grand slam breakfast i don't know what they did but they were not allowed to be present for the second part of the liturgy which was called the liturgy of the eucharist eucharistia in greek means thanksgiving it's the great thanksgiving the prayer of thanksgiving and in this part bread and wine would be brought forward, and the bishop would get up and tell the story of salvation, would give thanks to God in whatever way seemed best to him, and would call down God's blessing, call down the Holy Spirit upon these gifts of bread and wine, and then they would be received by all the people. They would be distributed by the deacons, and the bread and wine would be consumed by these gathered baptized people, and Every single early church document we have that discusses what's happening here talk about this in terms of being the body and blood of Christ. What Ignatius of Antioch, writing around the turn of the first century, calls the medicine of immortality. It is this food, the body and blood of Christ, that is killing death within our bodies. So this is the gathered body of Christ, the baptized people, who gather around to pray, and then consume the body and blood of Christ. This is the food that St. Augustine said, when you eat it, it doesn't become part of you. So every other food, grapes, anchovies, pizza, you eat it and it becomes part of you. You take those nutrients into yourself and it feeds your body, it is incorporated into you. Augustine said that the Eucharist, when you eat it, doesn't become part of you. Instead, you become more and more a part of it. So it's the gathered body of Christ consuming the body of Christ, growing more and more into the body of Christ. You thought, okay, I could get into that. I think I'd like to be a part of this group. I'm tired of being ejected halfway through the service every time. What would that process look like? You'd become a catechumen, and you would spend in some places a year, in some places three years, studying Christianity, learning the scriptures, learning the theology, learning from the bishop, learning from the presbyters, the priests, and the deacons, learning how to be a Christian, and then on the night before Easter morning, on the, at the Easter vigil, the, the great vigil of the Feast of Easter, the most important day of the Christian year, you would be dunked in a pool of water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You would be baptized. And if you were in one of these domuses, if you were in one of these Roman houses, and you needed a pool of water, where would you look? Oh, wait, we've got one in the atrium, that pool of water, the impluvium. It's a perfect baptistry. We've got it right there. So in the Roman house, in the house church, you have already the kind of architecture of modern churches. You have um, everything laid out that is the roots of modern church liturgy for the Catholic traditions, for Episcopalians, Anglicans like myself, for the Roman Catholics, for the Eastern Orthodox. Everything that we do Sunday by Sunday really has its roots in these house church services of the first century. And the Catholic traditions, Episcopalian, uh, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, we are of the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it school. Because if this is something that's been passed down from the apostles to us, if this is something that's been passed down from Christ to the apostles, who are we to change it up? After the service, we're told the deacons would bring communion to those who were unable to attend the service. In lots of places, people would probably bring their own little boxes to take communion home and give it to their families, to the baptized in their families, to those who were sick, to those who could not be present at the service for whatever reason. And the point of coming to church was not so much receiving communion, because you could do that at home. The point of the church was being involved in The prayer of the Eucharist, in the prayer of Holy Communion, in being part of the body through whom the Holy Spirit is acting to consecrate this bread and the wine, to make the bread and the wine holy gifts for God's holy people, to grow more and more into the body of Christ. And the church at this point might have been really small, depending on where you were. Maybe it was like 10 people. Maybe it was like 20 people but it was small enough that the bishop would basically do everything. So the bishop would have these presbyters, these elders or priests, the bishop would have these deacons, and they would assist the bishop in his ministry. But it was really the bishop that was preaching all the time, presiding at every service, really fulfilling this role of the apostle in that given community. But as the church of Ephesus grew from people hiding out in One tablinum, two people hiding out in two tablinums on a Sunday. The bishop had to go back and forth and then went from two tablinums to four tablinums on a Sunday. The bishop was like bouncing all over. And from four to eight, the bishop was like, man, I just, I don't have time to do all these services on a Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's day. Sunday is the day of the resurrection. Sunday is the day of the new creation. The eighth day, we can get into that later. And so we can't just uh, switch it up and do Monday at uh, Cacilius's house and Tuesday at Grumio's house, Thursday at Metella's house. We have to do it all on Sunday, so I need some help. So the bishop starts appointing some of the presbyters of the church, some of the priests of the church, to fill in for him. And to this day, in the Catholic traditions, in the Episcopal Church, in the Orthodox Church, in in the Roman Catholic Church, that's still what the priest does. The priest is the bishop's stand-in. The priest is standing in for the bishop to perform the bishop's duties in his absence, or his or her absence in my tradition, the Episcopal Church, which ordains both men and women to the episcopacy. So soon enough you have the situation where you have all these different services happening on a Sunday in all these different house churches, either the bishop presiding or one of the priests presiding, deacons assisting at all the services. But that's just Sunday. Sunday and then you also have continued home worship in every Christian family and every Christian household throughout the week. The minimum, we're told, in one very early Christian document, the Didache, is to say the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Say the Lord's Prayer when you wake up, say the Lord's Prayer in the middle of the day, say the Lord's Prayer at night. But that was the bare minimum, and for most Christians, prayer The consciousness of being in the presence of Christ, their identity as Christians, would permeate everything they did, every act throughout the day. These were people who were so devoted to their Christian identity, to their role as members of the body of Christ, that it trumped everything else that they did in their lives, that they were in their lives. So next week, we'll talk a little bit about the way this identity looked in the very early church and then how it looked in the era of persecution, when being a Christian went from being the sort of interesting, all-embracing lifestyle to something that carried the death sentence. Thank you again for joining me for the History of Christianity, and I look forward to being with you next time.